Hey, you're listening to Cut for Time, a podcast from Faith Church located on the north side of Indianapolis. My name is Claire Kingsley. Each week, I'll sit down with one of our preaching pastors to discuss their Sunday sermon. Cut for Time is a look behind the scenes of sermon preparation, and they'll share with us a few things that we didn't hear from the sermon on Sunday. Thanks for listening. Hey, Joey, welcome back. Hey, Claire, it's another week, another morning, another set of questions. Yeah, I'm excited. We've got some good ones to cover. So um, before we get there, let's just do a summary from your sermon on Sunday, which was Walk in the Light, one of the like yes, five or six the major themes of First John. Yeah, and Walk in the Light is really interwoven with um, another theme, which is to um, stay in the truth. Um, light and truth, you know, light symbolizes truth. And so um, those two themes were kind of woven together. And I think I might've mentioned that of like, oh, we don't have time to dig into the theme of walking, you know, stay in the truth, uh, which could have been a whole nother Sunday if we wanted it to be. So uh, yeah, so um, this last Sunday, we were looking at John's message. Um, He summarizes the gospel message, not in terms of the content to be believed, but the ethical implications of who God is. So he summarizes the message as God is light and in him there's no darkness at all. So what does that mean for us? Well, it means if we say we walk in the light, but we're actually in darkness, we don't really have fellowship with God or with one another. It means if we claim that our darkness is actually light, you know, that we don't sin, well, then we're just, we're, we're breaking up the fellowship with one another, the strength of the Christian community. So it's important for us to remember, you know, as we're reading first John, he's writing to a group of churches. He's writing to a collective. And we tend to, to read these verses as uh, individualistic. What do I do about my relationship with God when I've done something wrong and before him? And that's part of it. But that reconciliation between me and God is supposed to lead outward into reconciliation between me and others and strengthening the fellowship of the community. Just like two weeks ago when we talked about if I receive love from God, then I'm obligated to show love for others. If I receive reconciliation, from God, then I'm obligated or motivated to extend reconciliation to others. So um, we looked at these three false beliefs that John puts up and then knocks down and his sort of alternative practices to those beliefs. Um, And ultimately, the whole sermon pointed towards the communion table, where we gather together around the memorial of Christ's sacrifice for us. And remember, this isn't about me getting other people to confess what they've done wrong, though there's a reason, there's an extent to which love confronts others with their wrong, not so that we can be vindicated, but so that they can be uh, reconciled before God and before one another. Um, We only confront sin in others when it's out of love for them, not revenge for ourselves, right? So uh, the point of getting to the table was this this is a me thing, needing to examine my own sinfulness, seek reconciliation with God so that I can then go reconcile and extend reconciliation to others. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, hey, so the the author of first John or the, just the first, second and third John is also mm-hmm. the, the author of the gospel of John. Yes. And um, we see this same idea of light, especially like yes. in the opening, God is light in the yep. opening of the book of John, gospel yep. of John. Um, yep. Like, 
he's using this metaphor of God is light. Is there anything about this metaphor of lightness and dark, light and darkness that we just don't understand or quite, it's like, it's not as strong for us, right? Sure. As it was maybe for the pe- original hearers or the original audience, like what might be yeah. maybe missing because that just seems like, oh, we've heard it a lot or you know, we don't actually know what total darkness probably feels like. <laughs> to them. I don't, no, you know. no, for sure. Uh, yeah. So light and dark are um, metaphors used in almost every religion. We'll talk about walking in the light, walking in the darkness. You know, it's always a metaphor used for ethical uh, behavior, for how you behave, how you live in the truth or live in denial of the truth. Um, and I walked us through in the sermon, hey, God is light, which means he's self-revelatory, which means when light shines, you can see the truth, which means when you can see the truth, you can walk correctly. So light always has this threefold meaning of seeing the truth so you can walk in it um where we may not quite grasp the necessity of well what we probably don't get is that light is very much external to us we do not generate our own light we tend to forget that because we have light switches everywhere or flashlights you know or light bulbs or all of these ways to generate light but you know lose power in the middle of the night and suddenly you realize how little light you're able to generate on your own and you're like, man, where do I find fire and something that can burn so I can see something, right? So I can see, uh, mm-hmm. ha- find some light to see by. So to a, a pre-modern culture that's living by torchlight, um, light was a much, concerns for light was a much more integral part of, um, part of their life. And the fear of what, uh, the fear of the dark was much more profound. Mm. Um, you know, we can just turn on a light and we don't have to be afraid of the dark. Uh, but for those who could not conjure light on their own, um, the fear of what could come in the dark was much more profound. So we, we t- we've softened both of the metaphors just by our everyday lived experience. Um, I- I'm assuming if I say light, people would either think sun or light bulb, um, not sun or moon or fire. So uh, yeah, our understanding of light is very different. Yeah. Joey, I just sprang that question on you. And of course your answer is brilliant. I'm just like always, I'm just so impressed all the time. And I appreciate your, your wisdom and all the reading that you do to prepare for this. Yeah. You know, I I have heard, and I have not been able to back this up by my own reading, but I have heard that in the uh, first couple editions of the book of common prayer, so the 1500s edition and the 1600s edition, there were prayers for protection in the dark. Um, and that after the invention of the electric light bulb, eventually those prayers were deemed no longer necessary and were cut from later editions, hmm. uh, which I think is fascinating. So, um, yeah, we, we yeah. don't quite get the power of darkness or light Yeah, uh, yeah. as others, others did before us. Yeah, I appreciate your answer. Thank you. Um, all right. So is there anything that you had to cut for time for the sermon? Well, there's, yeah, there's plenty I cut uh, because we were... Uh, we were a little pressed for time in the service simply because it was Aperol out. You got mm-hmm. to do that, which was pretty yeah. fun to watch. Yeah. Um, so we got to do Aperol out and I wanted to get us to the table and incorporate communion into the sermon itself. So, you know, the only um, idea I had thought about including that I ended up not developing is I, I just finished reading uh, a book called In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts which is a big, thick tome of a book. I didn't realize how long it was because I got it on Kindle. And so I just kept going. Yeah. Um, but it is a the reflections of a um, Hungarian Jewish physician 
who emigrated to Canada and served as the physician in residence in the downtown east side of Vancouver, I think. Might have been Toronto. I forget now. Um, in the uh, drug hotels. So a number of old rundown hotels that were turned into housing for those suffering from addiction to various substances. And he's the on-call uh, physician. So he's he's writing about addiction and uh, the addiction process and um, the psychology of it and all of that stuff. It's it a fascinating book. But anyway, mm-hmm. he, uh, he referenced a concept. Uh, I had never heard the term before, though I'm very familiar with the concept. He referenced a term called counter will, which is when you are told do X, your counter will immediately comes to effect and says, I, there's no way I'm going to do X. I'm going to do Y. And um, his, because he's, he's in the context of, hey, you tell a drug addict, stop. And they're like, I'm not going to stop. I don't want to stop. Um, the only way to overcome counter will is to paint a better picture of what Y gets you. In other words, stop telling people don't do X. Tell people do Y because Y leads to the life that you're looking for. And I that kind of peaked for me a couple of times as I was reading and studying First John because he's not telling us, you know, stop sinning, confess your sins because you have to. He's saying that the fellowship with, you know, the communion with God that we are all, we all long to experience comes through the confession of sin and the intimacy of relationship with one another that we all long for comes through the confession of sin. So he's not saying go confess your sins. He's saying chase after communion with God and with one another. And to do that, you will need to confess. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's it's a much more compelling understanding of why we confess our sins than simply go do it. So uh, I cut that. Uh, maybe that would have served as a better framework. Um, I kind of tried to sneak that in a little bit at the very beginning with the story about my relationship with my parents being strained because I'd gotten a speeding ticket and hadn't confessed it, right? That holding stuff in, trying to live uh, a lie in front of people you care about makes it impossible to have a real relationship with them. And what I want is the relationship. I wanna be free to have a strong relationship, not free from the, the relationship in order to do what I want. Ultimately, that's unsatisfying and just leads nowhere. Sure. Yeah. So speaking of talking about confessing our sins, somebody asked this question. It sounds like um, you're saying 1 John 1, 9, which I'll just read that verse really quick. It's mm-hmm. if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It mm-hmm. sounds like you're saying that this is referring to confessing our sin to one another and not to God. Can you just clarify um, sure. what were you trying to teach in that? in that section and do you believe that the primary meaning of the passage is because of its context yeah i would say so what i was trying to get across and and i understand where the uh the question is coming from because i keep talking about this in terms of um restoring the fellowship within the church community because that's what john is talking about he he keeps skipping the fellowship with i mean he references like in verse three uh, we want you to you also to have fellowship with us because indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we, we're writing these things so that our joy or some translations, your joy may be complete. So he's saying, I want to draw you into fellowship with one another, um, this close, intimate communion with one another because you have this close, intimate communion with God. 
So reading it in that context that, hey, this is about churches that are pulling themselves apart by their denial, some folks denial of like, well, I don't really sin or sin's not that big of a deal. Um, John is telling us, hey, you've got to confess to the father and find reconciliation with him. You can't say like, hey, I just don't sin anymore or eh, sin's not that big of a deal. It is. And you do. And so you have to find reconciliation with him. Um, so first John 1 9 is primarily saying he, God, is faithful and just to forgive us. Um, faithful because he's he promised that in the new covenant he would remember our sins no more. That's in Jeremiah 31. And just because he himself provided uh, the means by which we can be forgiven and reconciled to him through the propitiation of Jesus that he talks about in chapter two and chapter four. So the primary meaning of the text is, yeah, we need to be reconciled with God. The context of the text tells us the point of that reconciliation with God is how it flows itself out into our relationships. As he'll continue to say, like, I've got one main message, God is light, and I've got one main commandment, uh, love one another. How do those things work themselves out in sin and reconciliation, you know, all of that stuff. So yes, we have to be reconciled with God so that we can then be reconciled with one another. Mm-hmm. Okay, thanks. So yeah. um, you were just talking about acknowledging our sin. Mm-hmm. Um, what's the balance between groveling because we are such horrible sinners and just being like stuck yeah. there and then talking as if we seldom sin because we're free. And um, isn't the mm-hmm. Christian life lived in the power of the Holy Spirit and filled with him supposed to be victorious, but yet right. that tension of we do sin probably more than we realize. And mm-hmm. so how can we truly talk about victory when we also need to be acknowledging our sinfulness and even growing in our understanding of our need for a savior? Yes. Yeah. It's a great question. And I think it it relates right back to what we were talking about all throughout Lent. We could call this the Easter paradox of it's so much easier to live on one side of the cross or the other uh, and not both. It's so much easier to say, well, I just live in the victory of Jesus's resurrection and ignore, deny all of the sorrow and suffering that is part of life as well. Mm -hmm. If you're, if you're sorrowful or you're suffering, you're just, uh, you know, you're not embracing the victory. Um, or I could focus in entirely on the sorrow and the suffering and um, tell people who are living in the victory, like you're just, you're being ignorant and uh, willfully deceiving yourselves about reality. Life is suffering, right? And and the reality is it's both. Um, we are both sorrowful and always rejoicing, right? Uh, we both live in the victory and understand that we are walking through the sorrow. Uh, and so I think it's very, it's a similar paradox comes into play on that question of, yes, we are sinners by nature. Um, you know, uh, for uh, such a worm as I, you know, Jesus came, says, says John Newton, the hymn writer. Um, so we are sinners. We have a sin nature. We have been redeemed and we are slowly overcoming our old sin nature through the progressive sanctification being made holy and made like Christ. We know we will one day ultimately be be victorious. And so we fight, we recognize and fight against the sinfulness that is still within us and that is still part of our nature and part of our habitual way of living uh, while resting and rejoicing in a victory that is to come. And so we have to embrace both the victory that the ultimate victory that is promised in the future, in the end, the taste of that victory that we can have now 
in small victories over our own sinfulness while recognizing that, yes, we continue to sin in ways that we of which we are not even aware uh, on a daily basis. I love the confession uh, from the Book of Common Prayer, the confession to be used on a, a daily basis, you know, every morning that says, uh, Almighty and most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed. Uh, so three different uh, manners of sin, thought, word, and deed, by what we have done, active sin, and by what we have left undone, passive sin, when we have been called to virtue that we have left uh, undone. And then there's yet further in terms of the audiences. Um, now I have to start over at the beginning to get it correct. <laughs> uh, you have it memorized. What done, what we have, I know what we've done and what we've left undone. We have not loved you with our whole hearts. Uh, so we have not loved you, God, with our whole hearts, and we have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. So um, sin, we have to remember, there are a lot of different metaphors for sin in scripture. First uh, John, he says, sin is lawlessness. Whoever commits lawlessness commits sin. Sin is lawlessness. Uh, Paul says in, in Romans 3, um, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So sin is falling short. Some of the words for sin are things like missing the mark. But others are words like being defiled and needing to be cleansed, um, words like uh, being infected and need or sick and needing to be healed. Uh, but there's also the metaphors for sin that are used more predominantly in the Old Testament of sin as spiritual adultery, that you have committed the whole of your life to one God, and yet your love is being pulled towards another and worshiping someone else and something else, you know, another God or yourself or whatever. And so when we think about sin and its multifaceted imagery, um, we tend to think the the core root definition of sin is breaking the law. It's like, well, I, I haven't broken any laws recently. Of all the laws I'm aware of, I've done them all. Uh, you know, I've kept them all. And so in that sense, you're like, yeah, I haven't willfully broken any laws of which I'm aware. However, has my love been perfect? towards God, you know, completely oriented towards God, or is it being pulled in other places? That is one of the images, one of the facets of sinfulness. Um, has my, have my actions or my attitudes led to a sense of defilement that needs to be clean, you know, cleansed, a, a sense of dirtiness that needs to be cleansed. Um, so all those different images of sin help us to get a fuller understanding of the biblical picture of rebellion, sinfulness, missing the mark, falling short of the glory, practicing lawlessness, letting your heart be pulled in the wrong directions. You know, I have not loved you. If you think of the book of common prayer and the way it structures that prayer, um, it's either getting more and more specific or more and more intense. Um, I have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what I've done and left undone. I haven't loved you with my whole heart and I haven't loved my neighbor as myself. I, I cannot think of a day where I've come to the end of the day and thought, you know, I did love God with my whole heart and my neighbor as myself. So in that sense, I'm always falling short, mm -hmm. right? I'm always mm -hmm. falling short. Now, do what? so what do I confess? Do I confess the specific ways that I fell short? I probably don't even know 90% of them. Right. Because with my heart not fully oriented towards God and love of neighbor, I'm completely unaware of opportunities. I let go by the things I left undone. And so I confess... I haven't loved you with my whole heart. Lord, help me tomorrow to love you and my neighbor just a little bit more. And I guess that comes right back to what we talked about all last week um, about loving your neighbor in the those tiny little small ways. So yeah, yeah, it's a great question. And it's a big struggle of like, how much do I sin? How, you know, do I not? What do I confess? 
I mean, John himself, even in chapter three, uh, three, and I think going into chapter four, no, in chapter three, um, he starts saying, um, everyone who hopes in God purifies himself as he is pure. And then in verse four, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practice lawlessness and his lawlessness. And he's, uh, he goes on saying, um, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. So you're like, wait, so am I supposed to be sinless? And I think uh, the key to understanding that passage is his repeated use of the phrase practice of sinning. Sometimes he doesn't use the word practice of, and he just says sins, but it's all within that context of anyone who habitually and regularly says this sinful activity, which God has clearly said is either against his law or pulling my heart in a different direction or an act of rebellion, whatever. Anyone who does that regularly and says, no, this is fine before God. It can't, it's not a child of God. So it's easy to read chapter three there to say, uh, oh, you know, um, God's seed abides in him and he can't keep on sinning because he has been born of God. It's like, oh yeah, great. I'm born of God. I'm not sinning. I don't sin yeah. anymore. It's like, no, I'm born of God. Therefore I won't consciously take things God has said, this is sinful and say, no, for me, that's okay. I can do that regularly and habitually and it won't cause any problems. Mm-hmm. Yep. So anyway, sorry, long answer to a short question. <laughs> no, that's good clarification. And just, um, I think we need that and it's good to be reminded of. So we appreciate that. Okay, Joey, thanks so much for your time today. Um, I will just mention we are finishing this series in just two weeks. It was a really short yeah. little series. And yeah. um, we're going to be moving on to Acts, the study of the book of Acts. And it's- I can't wait. Uh, long. It's going to be great. And I just want to say we're starting to sell sermon journals this coming weekend. Yes. And so people pick up sermon can journals. pick up sermon journals, $5 at the info desk um, for the yep. next few weeks uh, to prepare yes. for our, our oh, new man. series. I can't wait. Acts is like the origin story of the church. If the church is like the church you see around the stories of the church right now, and you're like, man, where did this thing come from? And how did it start? It's like, you go all the way back to the book of Acts. It, it's like, if, um, I'm going to use a super nerdy analogy, but if if this if the church right now is the Lord of the Rings, we're going back to the Silmarillion. We're going back to the Ainu Lindale. We're going back to the origin stories of uh, the first <laughs> the uh, the first age. So this is you super started exciting. Stop! You stopped talking English. I don't even know what you were just saying. I did. That was that was uh, the high elven tongue. <laughs> Okay, super. Well, you're welcome, everyone. <laughs> yeah. How, how many people do you think that it's going to land with? I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Fun fact. I, I heard once that uh, Tim Keller and his wife, Kathy, uh, would speak to each other in Elvish so their kids wouldn't understand. What? I know, right? It's ridiculous. It's a whole language is what you're telling it, me. Oh, it's a whole language. Yeah. Yeah. Tolkien invented the languages. He was a linguist and then wrote stories around them to get the languages out. Like his passion was philology and uh, which is love of words. And he wanted to, uh, he created the worlds around the languages. So there's a, there's a high elven language. Um, there's the sort of common elven language. There's a dwarven languages. Um, there's orcish language. Yeah. He's, he's written all these languages. Each one comes from different um, historic influences like dwarvish languages are more Germanic. Um, the elvish languages are more Scandinavian and Norse. Um, yeah, it's fascinating wow. stuff, man. You what can are, go super deep. Um, do you know any of these languages? 
Oh, no, I can't. I can't speak. I know. Okay. I mean, I know a few words, but. Okay. You know, what are like the apps people use to learn languages on? What do I hear people? Oh, Duolingo. Yeah. Is yeah. there a uh, Duolingo for these? Uh, Flamingo Elvish 4 Plus. There you go. It's on the app store. <laughs> so is our Faith Church Indie app. Everybody should have it on their phones. It is right. just search Faith Church Indie. It's there. Go to Faith Church Indie slash app for all your instructions on how to download, what to do, how to sign in. And um, yeah, we would love everybody to have it on their phone. And if you want to, you can also learn Elvish apparently in a different app. Elvish but or, but yeah. not through our Faith yep. Church Indie app. That's not through our not... Faith Church app. You'll have to go no. somewhere else for that. So, mm -hmm. uh, Hey, Joey, what's you your favorite? The... Uh, what's your favorite thing in our app we heard what julie's oh, favorite thing is yeah my favorite feature in the app yeah uh my the groups my groups because i am able to pull up uh groups that i'm part of and some of our leadership teams are starting to communicate through here which is super helpful um and so we're able to uh yeah like uh, men of faith i had a meeting with a couple of the men of faith guys on the leadership team today and the stuff we talked about from that meeting is already or will be soon uh, a message on the group so we can keep all of those conversations happening in one place instead of digging back through old emails to try to find stuff mm -hmm. cool all right so it's pretty cool i like awesome. it all right thanks joey thanks for listening to this week's episode of cut for time if you wish to submit questions to our pastors following their sermon you can email them to podcast at faithliveitout.org or text them into our Faith Church texting number, and we'll do our best to cover it in the week's episode. If this conversation blessed you in any way, we encourage you to share it with others. Thanks for listening. We'll be back again next week.